0: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com.
1: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Show podcast today on the pod. recriminalization. Oregon's landmark experiment in drug decriminalization is coming to an abrupt end next month as fed up lawmakers in both parties to make drug possession a crime for the first time in three years. What's this mean for BC's own drug decriminalization program? And forget the spin, why did Ottawa and Victoria turn our international student program system into a diploma mill factory preying on students? Plus, should the BC government share decision-making power over public land with indigenous groups? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Yesterday, residents who have their images posted online without their approval will have to apply to the BC Civil Resolution Tribunal to have the photos, videos, or deepfakes uh, uh, removed and even uh, be compensated for sexualized violence and joining me now to talk a little bit about this new legislation is our show contributor Jerry Mayor Judson hello 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 how are you
2: oh I'm fabulous it's only raining a little bit so I'm <laughs> psyched <laughs> there you go pleased
1: winter in Vancouver there Jesus. you go well let's talk a little bit about the mm-hmm. the Intimate Images Protection Act Nikki Sharma I talked about it uh, last week walk me through uh sort of the reaction people have ha- are having to that announcement
2: sure I mean it's pretty a lot it's a good thing it I think uh, it's it's an interesting sector to have hope in, I suppose, because usually um, the the procedure by which you have to say if your images are posted online, if, if an intimate image of yours that is real or not is posted online, going through law enforcement, finding a lawyer, and the onus is really on you to find these resources and to seek justice in whatever way you can and get you know the photos, the images, whatever, taken down. But this Intimate Images Protection Act brings about better change for people who have had their intimate images shared or even Even threatened to have their intimate images shared you can take action against the threat thereof which is Mm -hmm. good Um, and the definition of intimate images is now broadened considerably um, which of course it includes deep fakes and live stream images if someone went into your laptop and recorded you without you knowing Mm -hmm. and uh, it makes the reporting process accessible and expedited through the through the civil tribunal for targets of this type of cybercrime. So sort of to get a better understanding of this act, I spoke with Claire Feltrin, who is a data privacy and cybersecurity lawyer, and I asked her about another notable feature of the act, which is that quite young people can access this accessible and expedited reporting process.
3: Yes, yeah, exactly. So Under the Act, jurisdiction is given to um, BC's Civil Resolutions Tribunal, as well as the courts. But the Civil Resolutions Tribunal really deals with disputes on an expedited basis. And crucially, the Act allows individuals as young as 14 years of age to make an application on the tribunal's um, online platform um, without a parent. And individuals even younger than that can also make an application as long as there's a a guardian assisting them. So if,
2: say, if I come across or if I'm alerted to some of my images online, whether or not they are deep faked or whether or not they are genuine and I want to take action, what is, what's the process like? So I go to the website and then what?
3: If that happened, um, an individual could go to the Civil Resolutions Tribunal website and they have a platform called the Online Solutions Explorer, which helps people um, basically understand you know, what an intimate image is, um, what, what options they have, um, legally speaking, to get images removed and prevent further distribution. So on this platform, you would log in, you would provide a bit of information about the intimate image and provide some contact information. And from there, a case manager from the tribunal would get in touch with the individual and explain their options.
2: Would you, say, change anything about this act or uh, if if you made it, you know, would you do anything differently?
3: I think by and large, the provisions set out under the act actually do a really good job of addressing some of the primary issues and concerns when it comes to this type of conduct. So, for example, the very broad definition of intimate image, including deep fake. I think any sort of concerns I may have about the act will really come down to how it works in practice. So, for example, as you may know, these social media platforms and search engines are often inundated with. Quite a large volume of content m- removal requests on a daily basis. And so part of the practical problem with this type of um, non-consensual distribution of intimate images is simply tracking down the photo that's been distributed without consent and making sure that all copies of that photo are actually removed from the platform as quickly as possible. And then beyond that, you know, um There's always the issue of um, instances where intimate images are distributed by someone who remains anonymous or is simply unknown. So, for example, um, enforcing an order against an individual that you do not know the identity of um, won't help you in the circumstances. So that's a that's a quite a pervasive issue when it comes to a lot of types of cybercrime.
2: Aside from not sending intimate images in the first place, because we all know that that is the only way really to prevent your images from being shared. Actually not even anymore because we can deep fake, so it doesn't matter. But
3: uh, like, yeah. are there ways that
2: I can mitigate risk if I am engaging in this, in this behavior?
3: I think, um, you know, there are a couple steps that people can take um, to help protect themselves um, when it comes to this kind of conduct. One really practical tip is um, just covering your webcam. There have been some instances in which individuals aren't aware that they're being filmed um, when they are, in fact, being filmed. Um, in the privacy of their own home. So I think that's sort of um, one, one step that can be taken. Other than that, I think it's just important for parents to have a frank discussion with their kids and just tell them that, you know, this, this kind of behavior is against the law now in the province of BC and in many other provinces across Canada. And that, you know, if this type of thing does happen to you as, as a victim or as a target, it's not your fault. It can happen to really anyone at any age and it can have devastating consequences. So I think just, you know, Underlining for um, young people in particular that if they are going to send an intimate image to someone, realize that the internet is very permanent, that one image can proliferate across the internet extremely quickly, and it's really, really quite difficult to remove those images um, once they're sort of out there in the public realm.
1: Some good advice at the end, but I'm going to play dad here uh, for a second. Don't ever send intimate <laughs> images. But with <laughs> deep
2: fakes, Jazz. Like you. Did, know, Taylor Swift surely didn't post naked no, photos of herself no, on no, Twitter.
1: She no, she did not. So uh, no one is safe. Uh, no one is safe. But I mean, I'm glad they're doing it. I think it's right. I just, we hope we see lots of convictions and people held accountable for it. Because I think it is mm-hmm. just a, a, a much bigger issue than we actually think it is. And there's been huge amounts of victims when it comes to this practice. The NDB government is planning some major changes to the way decisions are made when it comes to public land use uh, here in British Columbia. Uh, It's proposing giving Indigenous people more power when it comes to managing crown land, uh, they will do so by overhauling BC's Land Act. Now, many folks are saying that uh, that uh, this is all occurring with, without much consultation, and especially because 90% of the province's land is under crown designation. Think of the impact that could have on mining. Uh, or potentially forestry or LNG, uh, it could impact many, many uh, businesses. And many have already said it's hard to get things done in this province. Uh, take a listen to Nathan Cullen, BC's Minister of Lands. He's speaking to our Simi Sarah this morning. Take a listen to his comments.
0: So what happens if if these changes to the Land Act pass? What it does is it enables the government to enter an agreement. If we were seeking such an agreement like we did with the Taltan in northwest BC last year, All of that process goes to public engagement as well. It doesn't, passing this doesn't mean the next thing happens automatically. We have to go through an entire stakeholder engagement process with the community, with if there's a mining company, as the case with the Teltan was involved, they were deeply involved. And then that also has to pass through cabinet.
1: That was Nathan Cullen speaking to our Simi Sarah this morning. Now, uh, there was uh, some analysis of the uh, BC Land Act legislation. It was uh, written up by Robert Junger, who's a lawyer with the law firm of Macmillan, uh, and a few of his colleagues. And uh, take a listen to this. Now, these, this is law, these are law firms that advise uh, big companies in logging and forestry about Indigenous law. Uh, and here, I'm going to read, read from the analysis from Macmillan. It says, quote, but make no mistake. The subject matter of the consultation is unprecedented and of profound importance to any company that requires authorization to use crown land in B.C. These include things like grazing, uh, grazing leases, mining leases, licenses of occupation, dock permits, right of way, etc. So they believe it is quite sweeping. Now, Kevin Falcon, leader of the B.C. United Party, was on with our Jill Bennett earlier today. He also expressed concerns uh, in regards to uh, the consultation that would be uh, required with indigenous governments uh, if this uh, legislation were to move forward take a listen to mr Falcon's comments
0: important to understand the courts the Supreme Court on multiple occasions has made it very clear that, that first Nations do not have a veto they' full stop they've said that on multiple occasions we must honor and accept Uh, as we do, Section 35 of the Constitution, which is really quite unique in the world that says there is actually a duty to consult and where appropriate accommodate First Nations' interests under case law. And that's something that we would absolutely adhere and support and continue to support. But what the NDP are doing is going much farther than that. They are unilaterally deciding that they want to provide a veto right. And the concern with that is that if you have... An MLA or a minister right now who has an obligation to act in the public interest. All the legislation is very clear. Ministers must act in the public interest. That means the broad public interest. But if you now bring in another group, and there are 204 First Nations in the province, to say that they also are now joint decision-makers on a specific land issue, then you've now got a, you've now got a, a conflict problem.
1: That is BC United leader Kevin Falcon speaking to our Joe Bennett earlier today. Joining me now is Global BC's legislative reporter, Richard Zussman. Richard, welcome. Yeah, John, thanks for having me. Why is the provincial government headed in this direction?
4: Yeah, so it all has to do with the UN Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. This government has made a commitment that they are going to work more closely with uh, Indigenous and First Nations communities uh, in this province. Uh, Premier was asked about this yesterday when he did a press conference. He said, in part, we've been engaging in the work with First Nations around major projects, private projects, public projections and northwest transmission lines. This is about dialoguing and ensuring that the province does things differently in the past, that Uh, There have been projects approved in the past only later on to have rejection from First Nations communities that in some cases have derailed projects entirely. This is about going and speaking to First Nations communities in the onset. But the issues that Kevin Falcon raises around this idea of a veto, and there's nothing in this consultation that describes any of this as being a veto. Those are politically loaded words uh, that are meant to uh, send a message to people that somehow one First Nations supersedes their power over everyone else. I I don't read that as being the case, but what this does do is produce uncertainty for the business community who may want to engage in projects in British Columbia. And that is clearly concerning. So uh, there are political power points at play here, but I want to let Quesalem have the last word on this. He posted on Twitter, uh, Squamish nation councillor saying governments exercise authority Indigenous governments exercise authority over title lands as an indigenous right. Quote, the colonial panic about this coming change is ridiculous. So we just don't know enough about what this change means quite yet. And it is being used for now to score political points. And that does create uncertainty, which is not great for the economy, but it's going to take time to exactly sort out exactly what the province is doing here. Their motivations are clear in terms of working, sending a message they are working with Indigenous and First Nations communities, the outcome. Still not
1: clear. So we already have a problem today, uh, five years ago, of projects taking longer because of that uncertainty, because of consultation. Uh, what is going to change? Because when, when I hear uncertainty, me look at our LNG industry, a lot of it couldn't move forward because of some of the work that is required with Indigenous communities. I don't blame them for that. It's was, it was also the federal government, provincial right. government. There's yep. a lot of yep. it, right? It's just layers upon layers. Uh, how does this help us move projects forward? Because we already have a notorious reputation in this province and in this we country do. of taking way too long, way too long in getting major uh, projects, natural resource projects that are important for the national interest, the provincial interest, and they don't get done. How does this in any way provide certainty at the very least allow projects to move quicker and be approved in, in, in a timely fashion?
4: The argument being put forward by government, and we heard this from Premier Horgan and we're hearing this from Premier Eby and we're hearing this from Minister Cullen, is that the having the dialogue with First Nations community on the onset of a project, provides certainty for that project so that uh, a company uh, developer understands what they must do to ensure that that project moves ahead in terms of land, in terms of uh, accessing resources, in terms of right away, and that happens upfront. And it will ensure that the proponent knows what sort of barriers are in front of them before engaging in the project. Whereas historically, we have had situations where a project has moved on and then all of a sudden a First Nations proponent has said, no, not on my land, no, not this way, and that has derailed the project. So that's the argument being put forward. Mm-hmm. What BC United has raised concerns about is if you give such sweeping powers on the onset from First Nations communities, then they will say... Well, add this and add this and stop this and don't do this. And and that ultimately will scare away uh, development and scare away business interests. So it's about clearly finding that balance. To ensure that, yes, First Nations are consulted, the rules are clear, but they're clear to a point of not preventing the type of development that the province does need to ensure not just economic prosperity for those First Nations communities, but to ensure overall economic prosperity in this province.
1: And, and I get where you're coming from. My concern is, or uh, one could argue in the last five years, we're already doing that in practice. So what is this conversation in enacting this in legislation going to do? Because I would argue major companies are already doing that throughout this province. And what if yeah. there's overlap with one First Nation disagreeing with another First Nations community. So
0: those are some of the what ifs. But- if you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: BC government announced that it is pausing all new international student applications at new post-secondary institutions for two years uh, to eliminate exploitative practices and improve the quality of post-secondary education in the province. That's what the government said. Now, Selina Robinson, uh, the uh, Minister for Post-Secondary Education and Future Skills, was on our show uh, yesterday. Uh, she was also on the show last week as well. Uh, I just want to conf- uh, talk a little bit about the numbers here in our province before we go and hear from Ms. Robinson. Uh, now, BC has approximately 540 45,000 post secondary students, about 175,000 are international post secondary students. That's about 30%, just over 32%. Uh, of all students in British Columbia post-secondary students uh, are international students. We have the, we're the number two destination in Canada after Ontario. Uh, and the numbers there are really mind-boggling, bogg- just for a second. About 76% of all tuition fees for colleges in that province come from international students. It's just, And that's a stat uh, from the Higher Education Strategy Association. And the report estimates that students from India alone will provide Ontario colleges with $2 billion in operating revenue for the 2023-2024 school year. It does speak to uh, how addicted uh, our public institutions, certainly private colleges, also are to international students. Now, I did speak to Selena Robinson, our minister, last week as well, about, you know, why did we walk ourselves into this mess? She says the minute she got in uh, as the new minister, she saw a problem. Take a listen to her comments in regards to what uh, she said she saw when she became minister.
2: When I became the minister... A year ago, I was hearing these stories and doing some investigation, talking, getting the data, talking to people. I, I brought it to um, to the premier saying, I am really concerned this is not okay. And so we started working like seven, eight months ago on putting together a package to, to address the system and making sure that the students are being treated fairly um, and that they are getting um, the quality education that they deserve, that they're paying for. Mm-hmm. They're paying for it. Um, and that hasn't always been the case. So I am fully prepared to take action, and you'll you'll see the details of that next next week. But taking action to address those folks who are not uh, meeting
1: standards all right and the minister as i said yesterday did make that announcement about pausing all new international student applications at new post-secondary institutions but who's to blame here like where did we fail the feds are responsible for immigration the provincial governments for post-secondary education which means they license private colleges as well we well, joining me now to talk a little bit about the issue is Ujjal Desange, former premier of british columbia former federal minister of health as well uh Ujul, thank you for joining us today good to be with you uh, who do you blame? And maybe blame is not the right word. How do you think we walked into this mess?
5: I think we walked into this mess because um, we as a country became greedy for, for quick cash. It's a misnomer for provincial and federal government to say we need healthcare care workers, we need uh, nurses, we need others, therefore we need students. That's not necessarily true. We need immigrants, but we didn't necessarily need students. Um, I think that uh, we walked into this because um, it was essentially a cash cow uh, for private institutions and public institutions, and uh, and we um, became addicted to that cash. Uh, uh, you know, the, the thirst for cash uh, made us blind to the human cost, both in terms of the Canadians that are already here, and in terms of the students that are coming in that are being abused and exploited. And, uh, you know, this is not new. We've been hearing stories about exploitation and abuse of the students uh, for the last couple of years, at least. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, you walk around in the South Asian community, in the Indian community in particular, you hear stories about abuse, financial and uh, sometimes often physical or sexual abuse of students who are under very, difficult circumstances trying to trying to make go, and they've borrowed money back in India or some other country and they uh, don't have the resources they're working long hours yet not getting paid and being abused we've known about this there have been stories in the papers and on radio and other places and uh, for the federal minister to say we just found out like two three months ago that's absolutely hogwash. I actually hold the federal government more responsible than the provincial governments because immigration is controlled by the federal government. If we need health care workers, if we need teachers and professors and skilled technicians, then we should get immigrants. It seems to me that when we were getting immigrants, we, our society was more at peace. And, uh, you know, people came, they began to work, they began to contribute. And, uh, and you know, if you want immigrants, then get immigrants. If you want money, get students. I mean, these students are really immigrants, prospective immigrants. Mm-hmm. They pay huge amounts of money to essentially go to the, to, to the diploma factories or mills um, that have mushroomed overnight in the last three, four, five, six years um, that are abusing and exploiting students. This is not how you build a civilized Country and a great economy, and even in terms of uh, the numbers that they've reduced, the economists in Canada essentially are of the view that the two hundred thousand uh, dollars person deduction in terms of the number of students is going to have a marginal impact and what we've done we've made ourselves addicted to cheap labor of the students mm-hmm. and huge amounts of cash from the students and what these economists are arguing that we need to actually deal with our own issues of productivity and uh, and uh, getting better mileage of our own resources. Um, and, you know, so it, it's not a win-win situation for Canadians.
1: But, uh, Ujul, uh, you mentioned the federal government, you blame them more, and I understand why, and I, and I don't disagree with you. But it, isn't it also that probably since the 80s and 90s, probably the 90s, um, we've allowed international immigrants to essentially subsidize our own post-secondary system because they pay so much more. And and, and the provincial government to a certain degree has allowed that as well, saying, you know, this is going well, we're charging them more, they're paying, let's keep this going. I mean, they're they're to blame as well here.
5: Oh, oh, absolutely. I mean, there's no question. Uh, You know, we've not been funding our public um, education institutions to the tune that we should be. And we are now depending on, foreign money to come in and the shape of foreign students who go to sometimes, quite often, in fact, to substandard institutions uh, where there is, you know, almost no oversight. I mean, the oversight by the um, private training institutions branch is is like it's, it's dismal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a small branch. It isn't able to um, or do the oversight on, uh, you know, thousands of students that are now in various private colleges that are mushrooming in the last uh, two or three, four years. So, you know, the blame is to go all around. I mean, the, the provincial government becomes addicted to extra cash and the federal government becomes addicted to, to the cash too, because they have to, because, you know, the federal government also funds post-secondary education through, uh, through transfers. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, if, if they can, create an extra source of cash for the provincial governments, there's less pressure on them to fork out transfers. So it's all around.
1: Uh, I was just looking at an article yesterday, Thompson River University in uh, Kamloops, uh, had 4,200 uh, international students for this semester. That's roughly, according to the present half of the student body. And I go, when did our public institutions, when we envisioned them going, yes, one day we hope half the student body are international students. Of course you want some, and it adds to the richness of the campus, but 50%, I think, is just absolutely ludicrous. I mean, the numbers that have been announced now, provincially, or even federally, what would you like to see? Do you think they need to be cut by another 50% in your mind?
5: Oh, at least, yeah. they they need to cut be cut by another two hundred thousand. you know it it's it's not just the uh, number of students that are coming in, the kind of um kind of pressures that we have on housing and and the like um, you have to know that that uh, you have in fact um, several hundred thousand. Immigrants, um, permanent residents that are coming into the country. On top of that, there are foreign workers. So it's not just the students' numbers; it's the other numbers as well, and they add to the pressure on housing, on transportation, and all of the other issues, mm-hmm. and uh, and and healthcare. and And I think that the, the, the federal government really needs to take a look, and the provincial governments really need to sit with the federal government in terms of the the social uh, transfers that they get, and say, look, we need to wean ourselves away from this extra cash that's coming into the country, it's actually playing havoc with, with our way of life and with the society that we have. And we're not really integrating people. Uh, we're essentially getting immigrants. Uh, but we call them students. Yeah, I mean, and we so charge and, and and we charge them money.
1: I mean, I was fa- I'm fascinated with some of the TikTok videos and Instagram videos where literally villages in Punjab are emptying out of young people, and they're selling land to bring their kid to make sure the kid gets here. And I go, what has happened to Canada that we allowed this kind of silliness to go on and just exploited people? That's not what we're oh, about. Absolutely, no? that,
5: that's not that's not what Canada is. I mean, I came to this country as an immigrant. We need immigrants, but we need immigrants. We don't need young people that we exploit. We want these young people coming in as immigrants, process them as immigrants. If we don't want them, let's not get addicted to this foreign cash in our public universities and colleges. We need to be able to fund these things ourselves. Yeah. Joel,
1: uh, thank you as always for your time. I appreciate the conversation, and, uh, and I agree with you. We need to be doing more. Thanks so much. Good talk to you. Bye bye. Oregon's landmark experiment in drug decriminalization looks likely to meet uh, its end next month, potentially, as lawmakers in both parties offer up proposals that would make drug possession a crime for the first time uh, in three years. The strongest sign yet, the changes in the year, majority Democrats earlier this month unveiled a wide-ranging proposal that would unravel a portion of Measure 110. That's the 2020 ballot measure that ensured users could not be prosecuted if caught with small amounts of illicit drugs. Now, under the bill, uh, lawmakers would make possession of small amounts of drugs like fentanyl, methamphetamine, and heroin uh, a low-level misdemeanor and give law enforcement more power uh, to prosecute dealers. Now, that's a nod to some of the anger, frustration, and angst many voters are feeling over open drug use in portland and surging overdoses around the state but it's also um, a notable u-turn or course correction for a state that has attempted to prioritize addictive services uh, addiction services sorry to drug users over criminal consequences in recent years here's a report from cnbc
6: a drug disaster on the streets of Portland, Oregon, that some voters blame on a law they actually voted for. Measure 110 passed in 2020 with 58% of the vote, decriminalizing the possession of small amounts of drugs, even methamphetamines and fentanyl. Instead of being arrested, violators may get a $100 citation. But those potentially lethal drugs have a grip on the city that not everyone can survive.
4: The potent drug fentanyl, man, it's killing people it's killing people it almost killed me
6: damian phillips once called these streets his home but is now in recovery
4: it's a lot rougher than anybody knows i can say that like going through the like the withdrawals and everything it's painful
6: for others the pain is just too much to overcome the police came and they were like that person's not high they've died on the sidewalk Jessie Burke is a local business owner in the Old Town District who voted to pass Measure 110. But now she says open and blatant drug use has become the norm. City Commissioner asked me recently, what percent of the day do I see people using drugs? And I said, is there a number more than 100? Given what's happened, Mm -hmm. would you vote for it again? Absolutely not. Just because you see the ripple effect of what has happened. The law was implemented just as the opioid epidemic and COVID-19 swept over Oregon. The number of opioid overdose deaths across the state growing every year since 2019. Preliminary numbers show more than 600 people died in just the first six months of 2023. Law enforcement officials say now the state's fentanyl crisis is exploding. Numerous recent drug busts in the Portland area leading to historic seizures by county sheriff's deputies, all leading to calls to repeal or at least reform Measure 110.
0: I believe the voters, when they voted for it, they didn't realize it was going to take away the penalties for criminal possession.
6: Republican leadership proposing changes that include forced treatment programs, a ban on public use, and the reinstatement of some criminal penalties. Democratic Governor Tina Kotek announcing a plan to ask state lawmakers to ban public use while declaring a 90-day fentanyl emergency to refocus resources on the problem.
0: The overdose epidemic that we're experiencing here in Portland is unequivocally a tragedy.
6: Dr. Andrew Mendenhall specializes in treatment of substance use Disorders. He's also president and CEO of Central City Concern, or CCC, a community nonprofit that helps the homeless.
0: It's important to not overfocus on Measure 110 being the cause of all of the problems. Oregon has had an under resourced behavioral health system of care for many years. Oregon has an affordable housing crisis that's been unfolding for many years as well.
6: Anyone home? CCC's outreach teams led by Drew Grabham regularly visit people living on the streets, some struggling with substance use disorder. We actually have a mobile van, like a doctor van and a dentist. Do you have any wounds or anything like that you'd want to get looked at? Do you believe Measure 110 just needs more time?
0: Absolutely. We need more and it time. Would be
6: successful given Absolutely,
0: more time? we need we need more services. We need more structures. We need more housing.
7: We need more employment.
6: Damian Phillips found employment with CCC's Clean Start Homeless to Work program, and he says another chance at life. What do you think is the best way for people to to find help or seek out recovery?
4: CCC. What I'm doing now is I'm actually able to make a living and to give back to my community.
1: That was a report from CNBC. We're well, joining me now to talk a little bit uh, about the challenges in Oregon and perhaps what will this mean for British Columbia. Joining me now is Eleanor Sterko, BC United MLA for South Surrey and Shadow Minister for Mental Health Addiction, Recovery and Education. Eleanor, thank you for joining us.
7: Jazz, thanks for having me.
1: So what do you think of that report? I mean there is a community in a state struggling with the issue of decriminalization. Some people having second thoughts about what is ha- what has happened there and many of them look like they're going to be supporting recriminalization. You're Thoughts on that?
7: Yeah, I mean, overall, it's it's a sad situation. I think that you know, whether you supported uh, you know Measure One Hundred and Ten in the states, or whether you are a supporter here in Canada of decriminalization, I think seeing what we're facing both here and in the states right now is there is no joy to be found in any of these scenarios.
1: But should it uh, uh, should it provide? us, uh, so perhaps a moment of uh, we should be rethinking what we're doing in your mind, um, because if, if this is introduced, going to be introduced next month, like literally weeks from now, uh, this is the conversation happening right now where they're basically saying, no, this is a course correction here. What should we take from it in regards to moving forward in regards to our program?
7: Here? It's an absolute canary in the coal mine here for us. I think, you know, even given the fact that, you know, on the BC government's website and the page is actually entitled Decriminalizing People Who Use Drugs, so if anyone wants to go look, it cites Oregon as one of the sort of models that BCU is looking at in terms of the success of decriminalization. Mm -hmm. And we look... Fast forward two more years from now, and we could find ourselves in a position where Oregon is. But, you know, in our opinion, why wait Mm -hmm. Um, until things get worse? We're already in the worst results we've ever had in terms of uh, overdose deaths in British Columbia. We have people struggling for services. Certainly, we have a housing and a complex mental health crisis that we're facing. And I just think that, you know, there's so much more that we could be doing, even, you know, without decriminalization, if we actually recriminalize or stop ignoring the Controlled Drugs and Substances Act and and do similar to what Oregon is proposing, um, we would find some success in that. And what I'm talking about in terms of what they're proposing from some of the legislation I understand is that they propose, you know, having it sort of like our version of a summary conviction, so a lesser um, criminal offense, but then... Individuals having through the court system there an opportunity to have those charges uh, expunged Mm -hmm. should they follow through with um, some treatment programs, which I think is a good way of being able to compel people into behavioral changing and life changing services. You know, and, and at the same time, ensuring that we're keeping a hold on different public safety issues that people are concerned about.
1: What do you say to the part of the conversation is that one, one of the speakers late into that story we are talking about, we have an affordability crisis, as they said, in, in Portland and in Oregon. There's challenges of needing more treatment. What if we were to address those issues in this province and continue doing what we're doing already? Because some, including the, the outgoing chief coroner, have said, you've got to give this more time. Uh, and we've politicized this. What do you say to that?
7: Well, you know, in a lot of the outreach that I've done recently, like I was just over in Victoria last week, I was with Seaspring Mental Wellness, we went out, we had a tour of just some conditions out on the street with people um, somehow surviving in tents, a lot of open drug use. There are people um, who will not ever be ready um, and and those for those people, those I consider those to be the highest at risk for overdose death people. Mm-hmm. We need to make sure that we're creating an environment that is recovery oriented and just allowing people to languish, you know and to go on in a self-destructive and harmful and potentially deadly path is not responsible government. It is not how we show that we care for people in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. so having the ability to use um, You know, something like going back to the CDSA and then perhaps using our criminal justice system to help guide people towards recovery. So creating a true recovery oriented system of care outside of justice and then within our justice system is going to help guide people who might not otherwise get those opportunities into those types of situations. Because, you know, when we talk about housing, so, you know, we've also visited a lot and we've all seen on the news, like Mm -hmm. some of the um, different SROs and very low barrier housing. When we put people into situations where they're even in housing, Mm -hmm. if they continue to have very self-destructive and behavioral health issues for which, you know, they're very hard to house, we're going to not be helping them. Honestly, it it, we've seen it. It's it's harmful to those individuals and to other individuals in that, you know, living in that place when we allow for that type of deterioration. And really, it's irresponsible for us to do that.